What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's uh, a unique program, in, in not only in Catholic broadcasting, but in all of broadcasting. It's a Catholic radio network, yet here we are doing a program for non-Catholics. That is our whole reason for the program. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, something you're not sure about, and you are a non-Catholic, or maybe you're calling on behalf of someone who is a non-Catholic, do give us a call. We'd love to tackle it at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial 1-205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. Uh, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, just put that question of yours in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll send it to us here in Studio One, and uh, we're off to the races. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? <clears throat> you know I'm doing decently. Thank you. We're going to do a little something a little bit different today. We're going to lead off with a question that came in overnight on the EWTN listener comment line. This is Dory calling in with a question. So in Roman, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it reads, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So my question is, this verse, which Protestants proclaimed, is what gets you into heaven. How do I explain this to my children that, why do the Protestants believe that this is all you have to say? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So let me first of all explain how I, as a Catholic, understand this verse. Okay. Cardinal rule of biblical interpretation, that Protestants claim to hold as well, is that you must read things within their context. And the context here would be the larger context of the Book of Romans. Um, So, as a Catholic, do I think that confessing Christ uh, with your mouth and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that that is salvific? Absolutely. But here is the question. In what way does it save you? How actually does it save you? And here is where the Protestant and the Catholic give very different answers. Because the Catholic, who really grounds his understanding in the rest of Paul's letter, notes that for Paul, the reason that faith saves is that faith is the door by which God's love is poured into your heart, this transformative encounter with God that makes you a different kind of person so that you you now begin to live an ethical life according to the principle of the love of God and neighbor. And therefore, God is able to pronounce you just— because you have, in fact, changed your behavior. Now, faith is what opens the door to that. Faith is what makes that transformation of character possible. The way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 2, which is also part of the book of Romans, verse 13, is this. It's not those who hear the law. 
It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then he goes on to explain how that happens. It's not what's done outwardly in the flesh by the hands of men, like the Jewish circumcision and things of that sort. It's rather the circumcision of the heart performed by the Spirit that saves, because the one whose heart has been changed, whose character has been changed, now fulfills, Paul says, the righteous requirements of the law. Not because he's adhering to some precept written in stone, but because he has become the precept. The precept is now written on his heart, namely to love God and love neighbor, which is the fulfillment of all of the law. So faith enables this transformation of character. That's the way it saves you. Now, what many Protestants think is, no, no, faith saves you because God just accounts you righteous for Christ's sake, just in virtue of your having faith, regardless of the character of your life. And Paul never says that, never says that. Now, your, your, your more specific question was, why do Protestants think that? And the reason they think it is because this idea was invented by Martin Luther in the 16th century, and for reasons that are more complicated than I go into in this show, but he had his own personal backstory, his own personal history. But Paul had a reading of St. Paul. Paul, Paul had a reading of St. Paul. Luther had a reading of St. Paul in which, when Paul says you're saved by faith and not works of the law, Luther misunderstood Paul, and he thought Paul was saying that you're saved by faith and not by any kind of moral behavior. So for, for Luther, the term works of the law means any kind of moral behavior. Mm. So if it's faith, it can't involve any kind of moral behavior. But that's not what Paul says. It's not what Paul says. He says works of the law, by which he means those things that distinguish the Jew from the Gentile. Dietary laws, purity laws, sacrificial rites, those kinds of things. Those things aren't what save you, Paul says. It is precisely the moral dimension. That's why Pope John Paul II could write in Splendor Veritatis that, that salvation is open to everyone on the path of the moral life. It's precisely in the moral dimension of our lives that salvation is worked out. That's what St. Paul teaches, is what Scripture teaches, clearly what Jesus taught, but that's what Martin Luther denied. Luther once wrote a commentary in the book of Galatians where he said that uh, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. Now, <clears throat> that's a very Lutheran thing to say. Nothing could be less like St. Paul than that for whom Paul, God absolutely smiles on a man because of his charity or virtues. Paul says in Romans 2, beginning of, verse, of chapter 2, he says, to those who by patient endurance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. Mm. Seems like uh, seems like Martin Luther took that like like you know a fumbled football on the field and then ran with it. Is that is that fair? Uh, <clears throat> yes, it was more like in a rugby scrum. Man, he was just <laughs> knocking everything out of the way. You know, for that for that idea. Well, you know that great philosopher Mo Howard of the Three Stooges once said. Yuck, uh, yuck, yuck. No, well, no, that was Curly. Oh, Curly. Mo said, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. There you go. Always love that. Thanks so much for your phone call to our EWTN listener comment line. You can call that uh, any time of the day or night. And if you're calling our regular call-in number and we're not doing a live show, well, then it'll automatically forward to that so uh, we can, uh, you know, mine those those calls that come in during pretty much any time of the day or night and then uh, put them on the air for you. In a moment, we're going to talk with Terry in North Carolina. We have lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for call to communion. 
Glad you're with us for Call to Communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's something really wonderful that you can do not only for us, EWTN, but also for your neighbor. EWTN Media Missionaries, what we're talking about here. They prayerfully take EWTN to parishes and the community through the print and electronic media that we provide. You can help EWTN share the good news by becoming a media missionary. Visit EWTNmissionaries.com today. Join us in sharing the eternal word with the world, and you'll also meet some very wonderful people. Again, EWTNmissionaries.com. Go there, check it out. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Terry in North Carolina, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Terry, what's on your mind today? Hey, my husband's considering RCIA in the fall, but we also have a um, dear friend, a PCA elder, who... Um, He's uh, emailed a note, and he has. Then ser- that elder seriously considered Catholicism a, c- a couple times in the past. But a serious concern question that he wrote was: He said, "Does God's acceptance, favor of, and love for us rise and fall in this life um, re- relative to the extent to which good works?" He said, "Bun faith, of course, is all truly good works are does approach or fall short of perfection." If yes then how could it be that there's no condemnation for those who are, present tense, he said, in Christ Jesus? If the answer is no, then why and how could our faithfulness and cooperative synergism with God increase God's acceptance of, favor of, and love for us? Yeah, thanks. Great question. Really appreciate it. So it, it, the question presumes that that relationship with God is a binary Either you have all of it or you have none of it. Mm. That's not the way the Scripture or the Catholic faith present our relationship with God. Um, St. Peter, for example, in Second uh, Peter 1.4, talks about our relationship with God as a participation in the divine nature. Um, uh, there is uh, St. Paul, in many places, and the book of Hebrews also, speaks about acquiring the mind of Christ— these are different metaphors for what it means to be in a relationship with it, having the mind of Jesus, and that this illumination of the consciousness, this participation in Christ's way of seeing, is something that happens progressively. It's not an all-or-nothing thing. And, and so Paul will upbraid the Corinthians, for example, and say, you know, you, I've just given you milk. Uh, you're not ready for solid food yet. You're yeah. just babes in Christ, this kind of language, right? Um, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, I pray, and this is to believers, mind you, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Well, were they not enlightened before? I mean, these are these are baptized believing Christians who are, sure. who are members of Christ's body. And yeah. he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may grasp how long and wide and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God, right? So this idea that there is a deeper penetration into the mystery of God, uh, into the reality of Christ, into a participation in Christ's divine nature, into his way of saying, into having his mind, 
Paul himself says, I, you know, don't consider myself to have completed the thing, but I press on and press further in, and so on and so forth. This, this metaphor sort of pressing in ever more deeply mm-hmm. into the nature and the being of God. And, and so the, the problem with your friend's objection is he is thinking of our relationship with God simply as, and this is the way Reformed Protestants tend to think of it, is a kind of legal transaction where you're either stamped with the word accepted or you're stamped with the word rejected, and there's, there's no other way of conceptualizing it. Um, but, uh, but for a Catholic, the notion of our relationship to Christ is more like, um, imagine the relationship that, uh, that wax has to a mold. You know, that clay has to a mold. Yeah. Where, I, where my goal is to ever more closely resemble the character and the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a real relationship. Wax and mold have a real relationship. But, it, but to call it a relationship of acceptance or rejection just, just misses, it's just the wrong metaphor. Mm. It just misses the nature of the thing altogether. And, and so what I want is to come ever more into this participation in Christ's way of seeing, and it presumes, say, for example, the first stage of that is, uh, is moral, moral, moral purification. So Paul can exhort us in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, he says, Purify yourself of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Well, why would he say that? It's not a matter of acceptance or rejection. This is a matter of how do I have the fullest possible encounter with Christ? Begin by purifying myself of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Uh, then, Then what do I do? Well, what he says in Ephesians, pray for the enlightenment of my heart that I might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God that surpasses knowledge. This is a this is a participation that's more than just cognitive awareness. It surpasses knowledge, Paul says. It's just a kind of a quasi-experiential knowledge. This is a participatory, perspectival knowledge of God's love where I've become that love myself, right? That's something that happens progressively. It's not something that comes in this binary of you've either got it or you don't, mm. okay? Um, now, within the realm of merit, merit just things just means things, f- you know, for which God recompenses you. Well, Jesus is the one that gives us the concept of merit. I mean, it's come straight out of the teaching of Christ when he says, if you give even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because they belong to me, you will not lose your reward. He says, you know, if you fast in secret, the Father who sees you in secret will reward you. If you give alms in secret, the Father who sees you in secret will reward you. All right, now... There, there, there is a level at which there's a kind of binary, right? And so, for a Catholic, you can be in the state of grace. You can be in the state of justification or not. So there is that binary. But within the state of justification, there are degrees of justification. There are degrees of intimacy with God. There, uh, greater merit means greater participation in God. Greater knowledge of God, greater love of God. Like we're not all on an evil, even playing field in the spiritual life. St. James says in his epistle, some of you guys pray and don't get your prayers answered. Other of you pray and you get your prayers answered because God answers the prayer of a righteous man. And he Mm. sets out Elijah the prophet as an example of someone whose prayers are uniquely efficacious because of their righteousness. So um, I I think there's just so much in the biblical idea of relationship to Christ that's just not neatly captured in this idea of an all-or-nothing binary. And another difference between the Reformed and the, the Catholic, and I'd say the Biblical, is that for the Reformed, this, this absolute dichotomy between the saved and the lost, between the 
justified and the unjustified, this binary yes-no, is something that we can have infallible knowledge of in this life. Uh, the PCA, you said your friend belongs to the Presbyterian Church in America, they follow the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith states that it is possible for a man to have, and I quote, infallible knowledge of his own election. All right? And, and I grew up in this tradition, and the, the note of us versus them, I'm on the inside, you're on the outside, and I can know that with certainty, with infallible knowledge, really penetrates everything about the religious community. I mean, it is, it, that, is the, that is the grease that, that, that greases the engine of the PCA. Mm. To know that you know that you know that you're saved and that your Catholic or whatever other neighbor next to you is not and that your job is to proselytize him. That is a big part of the tradition. And so it's, it's tough for a PCA person to grasp that you can be a completely fulfilled, happy, hopeful Catholic and not bother yourself with the question, am I saved? I, I hope I will be in time, but I don't need to draw that hard line right down through uh, the, the mass of humanity right now and know here are all the people that are going to go to heaven and here are all the people that are not. That's very important to a, pres- to a Presbyterian. Uh, the Catholic Church actually says you can't draw that line. God draws the line. You don't draw the line, and you don't know the line until you get to the other side. And so, again, the Presbyterian responds and says, well, then how are you not just utterly neurotic and totally hopeless all the time? Like Luther was, our guy, right? <laughs> and, and the answer for a Catholic is because I know where Christ is, right? I, I yeah. know where Christ is. I know that Christ is with the Church. I know that Christ is in the sacraments. And, and, I, and I can have a kind of moral certainty that he dwells in me, provided I remain in his grace and in his love, and I continue and persevere to the end, as he said that I should do. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. So that gives me a really strong basis for, for reasonable hope, and, uh, but not presumption, right? See, not presumption, because if I say, hey, I'm absolutely saved and there's nothing you can do about it, buddy, then maybe I walk away. Maybe I, maybe I lose my morality. Maybe mm. I go off the deep end. And I've yeah. known people to do that. I'm totally saved. I can go have this affair or, you know, cheat on these taxes or whatever it is because I'm saved. Like that presumption is a real thing. Catholic Church says you have hope, you have confidence, but you don't have presumption. And judge, God will be the judge of souls. So how's that, how's that work for you? Hopefully well. Terry? Thank you so much. Thank you. Terry, uh, Dr. Andrews uh, laid out an awful lot of great information for you and for your friend. You may want to check out the podcast. Uh, Charles will have that posted in the next couple of hours. Go to EWTN.com slash radio and then look for that podcast button. You'll see all the podcasts of the day in alphabetical order. Look for called communion and you will be good and, to go. And one other thing on that. Yeah. I, I, first of all, I would love to talk to this PCA elder. So this friend of yours who's a PCA elder, you said he's got these objections. Tell him you talk to me. I used to be in the PCA. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on John Calvin. I'd love to talk to him. He is welcome to call me anytime. And if he doesn't want to do that, direct him to the website calledtocommunion.com, which is written specifically for PCA elders. Yeah. It is like our letter to PCA elders from the Catholic Church, okay, by a bunch of ex-PCA guys. Um and in particular, I'd love it if he read a little article I wrote a number of years ago called How John Calvin Made Me a Catholic. It's a good one. And I'd love for him to call me up and tell me all the reasons he thinks I'm wrong. 
Yeah, look forward to that. Terry, thanks again for your call. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Two lines open at the moment, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go to Ron in Maine, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, I'd like to know if, uh, how can we be assured uh, that our sins, our past sins of our youth are forgiven? Is there any, you know, you you might go to confession, and, uh, and when you were young, and then as you get older, that you wonder whether those sins in your youth were forgiven. Sure, sure, yeah, I appreciate it. So we believe that the absolution we receive in the confessional is real, that it works, based on the promise of Christ, who said to the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven. And so we have faith in Christ, that he said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And that if I confess my sins, and the, I'm, I'm forgiven by the church in his name, that I am in fact forgiven. Now, you know, the the... My assurance of that is based on my faith in Christ, based on the data of divine revelation. If you reject uh, the teaching of Jesus, if you reject the authority of the Bible, well then, of course, you don't have that assurance. Mm -hmm. Or if you're in some other tradition that says it believes the Bible, but then kind of wiggle-waggles on John chapter 20 and says, well, Jesus didn't really mean what he said, and he didn't really say what he meant. He meant this other thing that doesn't mean your sins are forgiven. And that's how I grew up, actually. I grew up wow. in a non-Catholic church. and We like to quote all kinds of books, from the, all kinds of passages from the Gospel of John, but oddly not this one. We didn't like to quote that one. Yeah. And uh, we, so we just conveniently forgot about it. But if you actually believe it, that's the basis of your assurance. There you go, Ron. Thanks so much for your call. Here's uh, a question from Connor watching us on YouTube this afternoon. He says, I returned to the church after 15 years away, due in large part to your show. I grew a very good relationship with my local priest. Well, I recently relapsed into a habitual sin and sought out a different priest in a different parish out of embarrassment to confess in front of my new friend. Have I done something wrong here? And thank you for everything, Connor. Yeah, thank you. Obviously, this is a deeply intimate and personal question, and I don't have any idea about the nuances of your relationship, so I really can't pass judgment. I'll give you a couple principles, and you can make up your own mind. First of all, there is absolutely nothing wrong with wanting anonymity in the confessional. In fact, that's why we have the box. Yep. And why we have the screen, right? Yeah. And in fact, you know, a, a priest... Let's say you go behind the screen, and let's say that you talk on Catholic radio for a living, <laughs> and so your voice is recognizable to a lot of people, right? And you know at some level that the guy on the other side of the screen knows who you are because he recognizes your voice. Yeah. The anonymity thing and the seal of the confessional thing is so serious, he's not allowed to let on that he even knows who you are, even if he does. Mm. You know, and, and like if you go to confession on Monday and then you go to confession for the same thing on Tuesday, he can't say, well, you know, you were in here yesterday saying that. He can't. The, the seal of the confessional even works like with the priest talking to the penitent. He can't let you know that he knows who you are. That's how strong the business of anonymity is in the Catholic Church. So if you want anonymity, that's not wrong. Now, 
uh, there, there may be occasions that you have a really good reason to avoid confessing to a particular priest. Um, let's say he's your boss. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, I, I work for the church. A lot of the guys I know, they're like, I ain't going to confession to the boss. I'm just <laughs> not going to do it, you know. Uh, religious orders, they will, the, the priests in a religious order will often go to confession to somebody outside the order because they live with these guys. Sure, you know? sure. Uh, we'll come back to this a little bit after the break. Yeah, so uh, sit tight there, Connor. We'll continue in a moment. We'll also talk with Devin in Saginaw, Michigan, Steve in Spokane, and a couple lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We have one line open right now. You can snag it, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let me repeat that question that we got from Connor watching on YouTube today. Connor says, I returned to the church after 15 years, due in large part to your show, and I grew a very good relationship with my local priest. I recently relapsed into a habitual sin, though, and sought out a different priest in a different parish out of embarrassment to confess in front of my new friend. Have I done something wrong here? Yeah, thanks. So before the break, we said there's nothing wrong with seeking anonymity in the confessional. The the church is actually set up that way. Yeah. And there are some legitimate reasons why you might not want to confess to a particular priest. <clears throat> I listed two of them. One, like, let's say you work for the guy like I do. I work for the church. I'm not going to go to confession to my boss. Um, you know, here at the at the network, we have a, a friary of Franciscan friars. They don't go to confession to one another because they live together. Yeah. So they bring in somebody from outside the friary to go to confession to so they can keep anonymity, you know, among themselves. And you know, if I, if I say I'm mad at brother so-and-so, I'm, I'm mad at father so-and-so. I'm not going to go to confession and say, bless me, Father, I'm mad at you. You know, I, 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 we're not doing that, right? <laughs> no, no. Um, and, uh, and so there can be all kinds of reasons that you might— or you know, another reason is, and I've had this experience, you go to confession to some priest once, and you find out he's just a terrible confessor. You know, he, he, he loads all kind of guilt and shame on you and makes you feel like rot and like, I'm never going to him again, right? Mm, so yeah. you've got all kinds of reasons you might want to avoid it. Um, so no, no shame in that, no problem in that at all. Um, now, I would leave you this thought, though, that it can be, if there really is a genuinely sympathetic and, and you know, sort of mutual relationship of respect and so forth that you have with a priest and a friendship, that's a great blessing, can be a tremendous blessing. And you might find could also be a tremendous occasion for healing and spiritual growth. Um, and the motive, like, I don't ever want to do this again because I don't ever want to tell, you know, Father John I don't ever want to have to say to Father John that I did this. My His love for me yeah. is a motive for me to be good for his sake. You know, like the highest motive in the Christian life is to want to do good, not out of fear of hell, but out of love of God. Love of God's a pretty abstract concept. We really live that out in the love of people. Mm-hmm. And so as we experience the love of God in the gaze, in the regard of another person, wanting to do good for that person's sake out of genuine Christian charity— that, that's really what we mean by the love of God, is we actually live it day in and day out. And uh, that can be a really powerful and effective way to overcome habitual sin, to have that kind of relationship. But I leave that to your discretion. It's really your choice. 
Very good. And Connor, thank you so much uh, for your question. Glad that you're watching us today on YouTube. Let's go now to Ron in Maine, listening on uh, Sirius XM. We're not going to go to Ron in Maine. We are going to go to Ron in Maine. All right. Very good. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind today, sir? Ron in Maine, are you there? Okay, why don't we put him on hold then, and we'll go to Devin in Saginaw, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Devin, what's on your mind today? Hey, guys. Um, as I was saying earlier, um, I have a very close friend I grew up with, um, and he grew up in the Catholic Church and kind of was one of the reasons why I came over. Um, not the only reason, but um, one of the pillars in my Christian journey. Um I recently had a conversation with him about he, he's having feelings of leaving the church um, just because he does not feel connected. Um, and the specific example that he that he gave was um, uh, he was praying the rosary one day, and he, he just didn't feel any spiritual meaning to the Hail Mary in particular. Um, so him and I kind of had went back and forth and having a conversation. Um, and honestly, I just, I don't think I was as effective at conveying my conviction of how the Catholic Church is the pinnacle of the Christian, Christian life. So I guess my question is, how can I be more effective in communicating the deep-rooted meeting between the Catholic Church and Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Great question. I mean, in a sense, that's like the question. Now, I would say to begin with, however, in a slightly relevant but not central to your question, um, if this guy had come to me and said, I'm thinking of leaving the church because, you know, the rosary's not doing it for me anymore, my first response would be, well, by all means, stop praying the rosary. Yeah. Stop praying the rosary. This is this is not the be all and end all of Christian spirituality. Absolutely. And 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 this is a this is a pitfall that a lot of Catholics fall into. We have so many great means, so many great tools, so many great instruments within the Catholic faith through which to draw close to Christ. But culturally, we may be in a community that really emphasizes one of those means and and gives you the impression, man, this is the be-all and end-all. This is the bee's knees. you got to lay hold of this. If you do this thing, uh, man, it'll just transform your life. And that might be, for somebody, it might be praying the rosary. For somebody, that might be the Latin Mass. Uh, for somebody, that might be the charismatic renewal. Um, for somebody, that might be, say, the dogmatic tradition. All these different avenues of Catholic experience, <clears throat> and you get your, your devotees that get locked into one or the other of those and, and suggest that this is what the real Catholics do. Everybody else is just a wishy-washy Catholic. We are the real people. We've got this favorite devotions, favorite practice, favorite liturgical movement, favorite liturgical style, whatever it might be. And, uh, and that's really kind of idolatry, honestly, because they're all just means to an end. And Francis de Sales, who's one of the doctors of the Church, talks about this in his book, The Introduction to the Devout Life. And he says a lot of people get locked into this business of thinking that true devotion is giving alms or saying the rosary or going to Mass. or, or what. He says none of those things. There's none of those things. The true devotion, the real aim of the Christian life, is, is love of God and neighbor. It's conformity to the person of Christ. And, and uh, the spiritual writers talk about this stage in our spiritual development where the devotions of yesteryear stop speaking to us. And rather than trying to resurrect what has now become for us a dead form, 
The important thing is, all right, God wants me to put this aside for right now. What do I do next? And another really important stage in the spiritual life is that sense of dryness, of disconnection, of aimlessness, of, of frustration, of emptiness. That is God talking to you. And not to tell you you're doing something wrong. And all the spiritual writers talk about this. This is the, this is the removal of the God candy. All right? enabling us to enter more deeply into the experience of desolation that is Christ's own. Go read Psalm 88. This is the cry of someone who has completely become disconnected from the people of God and from his experience of God, and yet he moves forward in a kind of blind, dark adherence, right, with no feeling attached. That's a really important stage in the development of the spiritual life, because if you can't do that, in, in uh, the effluvia of your life of prayer, how are you going to do it with your wife? How are you going to do it with your kids? Mm-hmm. How are you going to do it in the face of real serious difficulty, you know, in the moral decisions of your, of your daily existence? Um, <clears throat> you know, big crisis in the marriage today <coughs> from guys that say, well, you know, I don't love my wife anymore, so I'm going to go do something else. The proper response is start loving your wife. Right? Don't yes. go looking for titillation someplace else. Start loving your wife. And we learn this skill really in the depths of prayer, as you know, we seem as it were to fall out of love. Not not that we stop loving God, but we, we're not in love the way mm. the teenagers are anymore with our Christian life. And that 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 desiccation, that dryness, uh, is actually crucial to developing the character uh, that Christ had, not my will but thine be done. Um, so that that's, I really think, what's motivating him is a radical misunderstanding of the way in which the Catholic Church is meant to work upon us, okay? Um, relationship with Christ is primarily a matter of obeying his teaching, imitating his example, and being conformed to his divine personality, his way of seeing the world. And Christ's way of seeing the world was to see through people's posturing and their the various masks and identities and roles they put on to make themselves feel better and to go straight to the heart of you know are you a hypocrite are you sincere uh, are you a person in need are you marginalized are you outcast how can i go be present to you to develop that kind of sensitivity to the human person is the task of the christian life and that's not easy and it rarely happens apart from the experience of suffering in your own life Devin, great call. Thanks so much for it. Let's go to Ashley, a first-time listener in South Carolina, listening on Catholic Radio in South Carolina. Hello, Ashley. What's on your mind today? Hey, um, thanks for taking my call. I just had some questions. Um, I'm Christian, raised in the South, naturally, so probably, you know, just Baptist, I guess, really kind of what I guess I would classify myself as. But um, I have several friends and different family members who are Catholic, and I think I'm just confused about, you know, because in Hebrews, I, I'm, my understanding is that Catholics follow the Bible as well. So in Hebrews 4, it tells us that, more in short words, you know, God is our intercessor. Um, he is our high priest. And so we should come boldly to the throne. And so I guess my question is, is if Jesus has come and he's died on the cross and he's paid the price for our sins, what is the need for us as Christians to come to a priest if Jesus is our high priest and is sort of, and he's come and, and sort of done away with all the middle ground, I guess. 
Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So let, let's let's talk about Hebrews 4 and the whole book of Hebrews for a second. What is the larger context of the book of Hebrews? Uh, Hebrews was written to first century Christians who had come from Judaism and were thinking of going back to Judaism. They were, they were tempted to apostasy, to leaving the Christian faith and going back to their Jewish roots. And the argument of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than the temple, and that all those things were a shadow pointing to the supremacy of Christ. And you, in him you now have the fullness, you don't need to go back to those things. And what he, what he rules out in the book of Hebrews, the sacred author, is return to Jewish sacrificial worship. Well, Catholics also do not practice Jewish sacrificial worship. We don't offer goats and bulls in the temple. Uh, we don't practice the, the ritual ablutions and the purity laws of Judaism. Uh, we, we don't do those things, right? And so we're not tempted to go back to that. But to suggest that the book of Hebrews says that Jesus got rid of the principle of mediation, not, not just the mediation of the Jewish priesthood, but all mediation— well, to say that is to, is to completely ignore the rest of the New Testament. Uh, the, the New Testament and the teaching of Christ are full of mediation as the way in which Christ gives his grace to us. So let's start with the teaching of Jesus himself. Christ said in the Gospel of Luke to the apostles, whoever hears you, hears me. Mediation. Matthew chapter 28. Go unto all nations, make disciples, teach them everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So through the teaching of the apostles down through the centuries, Christ promises to indwell that authoritatively. Mediation, supernaturally empowered mediation. John chapter 20, receive the Holy Spirit, he says to the church. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain are retained. Mediation. The apostles being given power by Christ to forgive sins in Christ's name, mediation. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians, when the man who had, who had been with his stepmother is excommunicated and then reconciled to the church, Paul says, I forgive him in the presence of Christ, mediation. At the, at the, at the angle of confession, uh, we do, of course, confess our sins to God and Christ directly, but Scripture both demonstrates and commands that we confess our sins before men. St. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Um, uh, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 8, at the apostles' preaching, the people came forward confessing to the apostles their, their, their magical practices and their divination and their adulteries and their other wicked deeds. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 5 um, uh, men and women came out to John the Baptist in the wilderness confessing their sins. I mean, the, it, over and over and over again in, in the New Testament sacred scripture, this principle of, uh, of public confession of sin to mediators who have been authorized by God to forgive. St. Paul even says in Colossians chapter 1, he says, I fill up in my own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. Mediation. So the principle of mediation is not done away with by the book of Hebrews. Um, it, it, rather, uh, the, the, the reason for the rejection of Jewish sacrificial worship, worship and, um, and, and ritual purity laws was that Christ said it is not, uh, uh, it's not what the washing of the body 
And it's not what goes into the body that makes a man clean or unclean. It's what comes out of his heart that makes a man clean or unclean. It's not tithing mint, dill, or cumin. Uh, it is love and justice and mercy and faithfulness. Paul says it's not the circumcision done in the flesh by the hands of men. It's the circumcision done in the heart by the Spirit that makes a man a real Jew or a real Hebrew. It's not hearing the law, it's obeying it, he says in Romans 2.13, by which a man will be justified. So there, there is mediation, but it's, it's mediation aimed at this transformation of character in the inner life not a mediation of ritual purity and, 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 and outward observances, but one that touches the heart, transforming me into the likeness and character of Jesus. And so Christ gave us a church that's saturated with means, with instruments, that touch us at so many different levels of our personality, in our mind, in our imagination, in our body, in our affectivity, in our emotions, in our gestures, so that we can more fully assimilate and incorporate the mind of Christ. We can come to have Christ's character imprinted upon us. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know something about uh, school teaching. If you go to, to the School of Education today, learn how to be a grammar school teacher, they're going to tell you, you have to use multiple media. You, 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 can't just have, you can't just lecture the kids. You can't just use a textbook. You have to have tactile means. You have to have auditory and visual means. You have to have gestural means. You have all these different learning styles. You have to employ them all, as many means as possible, to embed the information into the child so that it becomes second nature. That's the way Jesus set up the church. All these different means, with one goal, that we might come to have the mind of Christ. Ashley, is that helpful for you? I think so. I think I'm just trying to understand. So since I'm not Catholic, does that mean if I'm if I don't attend a Catholic church and I don't confess to a priest, but I confess to Christ in my prayer life and maybe other people who I have as accountability partners, are those not considered? I mean, are those not on the same level? I mean, is that? Oh yeah, I mean, sure. Guess, great question. Great question. Let me let me let me, let me give you an analogy. Uh, it's kind of like this: uh, if you get a bacterial infection, you could go to the doctor and get an antibiotic and knock that sucker out real quick, right? The antibiotic is uniquely effective at eliminating bacteria. Does that mean that a doctor's prescription is the only way you can get well? No, absolutely not. You, you can get well on your own, right? I mean, there, there, you can get over an infection without the antibiotic. Um, but the antibiotic is the authoritative and, and most efficacious way of doing it. And so, like, we think that God can give you his grace any way he wants to. If God, I mean, if God wants, you go eat a hamburger and God could say, this is the moment I'm going to infuse her with grace, right? It could, it could be the hamburger epiphany, right? <laughs> but Christ has established certain authoritative means to which he has attached a promise. So he said about confession to the church, and this is the church that he founded, the one that's been in continuous existence for 2,000 years, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Whoever sends you, forgive or forgiven. And so that's present to us in the Catholic priesthood, in the, in the apostolic succession of the Catholic bishops, and it's present in a uniquely powerful and efficacious way. It doesn't mean that there's no grace apart from that. And we do. There is grace in the, in the Baptist Church, and there's grace in the Presbyterian Church, and there's grace to be found in, in our confrontation with nature. Uh, but the publicly available revealed means that Christ gave us are those that he gave to the Catholic Church. It doesn't mean we reject everybody else or think that God rejects them. We don't think that at all. 
But if I, my goal is to get as close to Christ as possible, then why wouldn't I use all the means that he gave me? Great questions there, Ashley. Thanks so much for your call. Keep listening to EWTN. We are here for you. Call to communion on EWTN. Hey, lots happening at this year's EWTN free family celebration. Join us Saturday, August 26th, just a couple of weeks from now in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Enjoy talks from your favorite EWTN radio and TV hosts. You can shop EWTN's religious catalog, attend Holy Mass, be part of a televised show, and how about this? The day's activities culminate with a Eucharistic procession through the streets of Birmingham. How about that? Go to EWTN.com slash family celebration to find out all about it and to register. Remember, it is absolutely free. EWTN.com slash family celebration. Let's go back to the phones now and talk with Maria in Pennsylvania listening on the great Holy Family Radio. Hey, Maria, what's on your mind today? Hey, good afternoon. Um, my question is partly my own, but partly came through an elderly friend who had, was struggling with tenets of the Catholic faith. And she recently said to me that uh, original sin is a Catholic Church invention, that nowhere in the Bible does it actually say that Adam had an original sin, that his, his rupture with God was an original sin. And though I, I do believe in that rupture, and I, I do believe that it was an original sin and that had a consequence. I do struggle with the corporate na- uh, nature of that original sin um, because when I when I think that I sin personally and I go to confession, I believe that God forgives me that sin, and I don't. I don't. I, I was never taught that the guilt of my personal sin would be inherited by my children, as they do inherit my my genetic composition. Yes. That I do know. Yes. You know, but do they also inherit my spiritual um, failure? Yes. Thank you so much. So, so guilt is not passed down through the generations. Guilt is not passed down through generations. Not even with the case of original sin. We are, we are not personally culpable for Adam's fault. That is a misinterpretation of the Catholic doctrine. And to be sure... My children are not held perfect, personally accountable for my missteps either. And, and the book of Ezekiel speaks to this explicitly. And, and God says, you know, I will not punish this, the children because of the sins of the father or vice versa. So that is absolutely false. Um, uh, original sin in the Catholic doctrine uh, refers not to some positive guilt or, or corruption and herring in the soul, but rather to the absence of sanctifying grace. So what it means for us to be born in original sin uh, is not, it's not actual sin. What it means is we don't come into the world with sanctifying grace in our souls. We don't come into life uh, inherently connected in a saving way with, with God. We have to receive that through faith in the sacraments. Um, Adam and Eve were created with sanctifying grace. They lost that for their progeny. So it's a privation. It's the loss of something super added to the, per, to the person, not something um, that is uh, positively inhering in our soul like some sort of infection or something. That, that's the wrong way of conceiving it. Um, as for the Church having invented it, uh, St. Augustine is not the first person to talk about original sin, but he is the first person to really give it a thorough explication. And he did so based on his reading of the book of Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 12 to 19. So it was an Augustinian interpretation of a Pauline passage. Now, it's true that there are other segments of the Christian world that have read that passage differently and have come to different conclusions about it. 
Um, and so there's a all doctrines develop, whether it's the Trinity, original sin, or the incarnation, or the Eucharist, whatever you, whatever aspect of Christian faith you talk about, you can you can find a first theologian who discussed it based on their reading of the tradition and sacred scripture. And, and so there is a sense in which you can say, yeah, Augustine, and I'm going to put this in quotes here, made up the doctrine of original sin insofar as he was he was he was striving to find a way to articulate Paul's message in Romans 5, and he did that in an idiosyncratic way that's been characteristic of the Western theological tradition ever since. Uh, but the Catholic Church considers Augustine's interpretation more or less faithful to the writing of St. Paul, and it's an authentic interpretation, but it does have a date stamp on it. You can talk about when this really entered into the theological discourse. Um, but, you know, the idea that we would fall in Adam and that, you know, mortality and the state of sinfulness and so forth, this is something that is our lot as, uh, as Adam's progeny that clearly predates Augustine. And you can find, you know, you can find that woven throughout the tradition, Christ and Mary are said to undo the curse of the tree. I mean, this, this dynamic of lost in Adam, raised in Jesus is a biblical one. That's a Pauline theme. Um, so, uh, but yeah, don't worry about the inherited guilt business. That, that is not the way this goes. Maria, thanks so much for your call. A quick question here from Pops, who says, Dr. Anders, you say you don't care what Tertullian does because he was a heretic and left the church, and you also say, who cares what Tertullian says? But yet, you cite him as a church father and even use him to defend your apologetics at times. Yeah, well, actually, I don't cite him as a church father. I cite him as an early Christian writer. And I, I use Big that. I, mean, I use that terminology, and uh, and yeah, absolutely. See, I think Tertullian. I don't like Tertullian personally very much, uh, but I find him a very helpful witness to what was going on in second-century Christianity. So I will often speak about the things that Tertullian rejected uh, to show that that there was a Catholic position uh-huh. that Tertullian was rejecting. Okay. So he's a negative witness to the Catholic Church rather than a positive one, right? You say, like, Tertullian rejected the authority of the Pope, but he understood very well that the Pope, that the Pope claimed authority. Ah. And there was a—Tertullian had a Catholic period in which he affirmed Catholic teaching that he then later rejected. To understand the reasons that he did so is good historical uh, uh, scholarship, good historical data that I use to inform my understanding of what was second-century Christianity like in that it, it included people like Tertullian. Pop's glad we could clear that up for you. We also had a great question that came in from Steve. Steve, if you could call us back tomorrow or on the show of your choice, we'll uh, put you at the head of the line. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, live here on EWTN Radio with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime at EWTN.com slash radio. Until tomorrow, we'll see you then. Have a wonderful evening and God bless.